This morning I'll be reading first from Exodus chapter 20. As we continue our study through the Ten Commandments, we come today to the Sixth Commandment, and I'll be reading verse 13, and then afterwards I'll turn over to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and read verses 21 through 26. First of all, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. This is God's word. You shall not murder. Then from Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I'm sure you've seen this statistic, or at least a very similar statistic, that every American child, by the time they reach the age of 18, will have seen either real or simulated acts of violence 200,000 times just from watching television or movies. And they will witness simulated murders 16,000 times by the time they get to the age of 18. We're not even talking about video games. I think only the most clueless among us would believe that that doesn't have an impact on the souls of our children. We take life very lightly. We see it as very disposable. In this culture, I think more than any in American history. Life is precious. And we do not appreciate the preciousness of life or the horror of death unless maybe we really witness it. And we witness it so rarely, in a sense. When you think of the beginning of life, I raised five children. I didn't witness the beginning of their lives, because that happened in the womb. But I did see their first breaths. Life is very precious in those moments. Any of you that have witnessed that know how special life seems to be in that moment. But I've also witnessed death. I sat with a young father in a room next door to the delivery room while he held his baby boy that was only hours old and watched him as he held him in his arms, breathe his last and die in his arms. I have watched an aged mother and wife lie in her her hospital bed with her husband of over 50 years at her side, listening. I sat there for two days with her husband, listening to her last breaths as they became more and more intermittent and finally stopped. 
We take life, the preciousness, the high value of life, so lightly, so for granted. Especially in this culture of death. So this morning we come to the sixth commandment. It's actually one of the shortest verses in scripture. In the original Hebrew language, it's two words. Don't kill. Don't kill. You'll notice that the ESV is an English translation of those original Hebrew words. Translates it, you shall not murder. And there's just a little bit of interpretation going on there. Because there is a distinction, a biblical distinction, between killing and murder. Killing is a broader category. Murder is a type of killing. The Old Testament not only allows for some types of killing of life, but actually even commands it in some cases. And so I want to take just a minute to look at those types of killing that are allowed or even commanded by Scripture. First of all, plant life. It's life created by God. It's real life. Animal life is real life of high value created by God. But God allows, even before the fall into sin and rebellion, God allows for plant life to be taken for man to enjoy the food of the garden. And after the fall, particularly after the flood, you have animal life is allowed to be taken by man in order for food. And we also know, of course, animals can be taken in the animal sacrifices and act of worship to God. So obviously, taking of plant life and taking of animal life is not what's in view here in the Sixth Commandment. Having said that, especially in this culture, which I think in a good way in many ways is very sensitized to the issue of environmentalism, we are to be good stewards of the life. We are to highly value the life of the plants and the lives of the animals. We are to highly value the, them and to use them and, and uh, shepherd them, so to speak, as good stewards. And we're accountable for how we treat the life that God has created. Animal cruelty is a sin. Deforestation is a, is a sin. Pollution is a sin. But understand that those are sins and violations of different commandments of Scripture, not this one. The Sixth Commandment does not view that kind of sin. The Sixth Commandment deals with, rightly, the ESV says, the issue of murder. But there are actually ways to take a human life that is allowed or even commanded in Scripture. One of those is that's allowed is to defend your own life or your family's lives by the taking of the life of an intruder. The allow, law allows for that. So self-defense is a legitimate occasion where you might take the life of a human being, even, to defend your life or the lives of your family. Capital punishment. Controversial topic, but scripturally speaking, the law does allow for the state, and I emphasize the state, to take human life as a penalty for the taking of human life. Last week we looked, in looking at the fifth commandment, we looked at Romans chapter 13, where Paul lays out God's design for civil government, the civil authorities. And in describing the authorities of the civil government, this is what Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. God appoints the civil authority, even if the civil authorities don't recognize 
that that appointment comes from him and that they have delegated authority from him. They are still God's servants, Paul says. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Paul specifically uses the language of bearing the sword. The sword is an instrument of violence. It's an instrument of shedding blood. And he says that rightly the civil government has the power of the sword within the very specific and narrow limitations that the law of God reveals. The the sword, the power of the sword is given to restrain the wickedness of man. And as we'll see in a moment, to uphold the high value of life. And an extension, the fourth way in which the law allows for human life to be taken, the fourth way in which life is allowed to be taken, is actually an extension of the third one, not just in terms of punishing the evildoer, and particularly those who take human life, but just warfare. Historically, the church has always acknowledged that the civil government has the right to wage war within very narrow limitations. And scripturally and theologically, the church has sorted this out over many generations, and they've come up with a just war theory that goes all the way back to early parts of the church history. And if you've ever studied just war theory, you know some of those biblical principles whereby a state might legitimately wage war. First of all, it must be waged by a legitimate government, the just war theory says. It must be for a just and worthy cause. And of course, self-defense being the primary one. It must be with force proportional to the attack is another principle. And it must be waged against soldiers and not civilians, which is another principle of just war. There's others. But these are biblical principles that are developed to say how must the civil government wage war when it's necessary. So the taking of a human life is allowed in personal self-defense to protect your family, and it's allowed in the hands of the state to punish murder, particularly, and to wage war when war is necessary, particularly in terms of the defense of the people. The power of the sword is to be used to preserve and to uphold the value of life. That's what the scriptures teach us. Once you start to look at actually what is then called murder, and again, I agree with the ESV that what's in view here, and actually the Hebrew word that is used is always used in the context of what we would call murder, that when you talk about murder, the the biblical law, as you just take a second and you look at the whole scope of what the laws say about murder, it actually makes a lot of distinctions regarding what is murder and different levels of accountability for murder that we would be familiar with even in an American judicial system. First of all, you think of the most obvious and most uh, heinous of the sin of murder is what we would call premeditated murder. In other words, it's planned out in advance. It's intentional, and it's planned out, and it's carried out in the language we always use is in cold blood. Premeditated murder. A lower level of murder that we recognize and Scripture also recognizes is what we call voluntary manslaughter, where there is intent to murder, but there's no pre-planning to it. It happens not in cold blood, but in hot blood, so to speak, in the passion of the moment. And that's called voluntary manslaughter. And it's lesser in punishment in our own system from um, premeditated murder. Involuntary manslaughter is another category that we recognize that the scriptures also recognize, or what we would call reckless homicide. 
In other words, where I am being so reckless, so careless in how I live my life that I'm putting other people's life in danger. And the clearest example of something like that might be something like driving drunk. And then there's a fourth category that both our culture and the, the, the scriptures acknowledge, which is what we'd call negligent homicide, where you don't take the proper precautions to keep accidental death from happening within the realm of your responsibility. A couple of examples from Old Testament law. In the Old Testament times and biblical times, typically your houses had a flat roof, and they, you would use that flat roof for picnics, study, whatever you might use that second floor for, but you would use the second floor. Well, if you built your house, and according to the Old Testament law, and you didn't put a railing around the roof, you were actually guilty of murder if somebody accidentally fell off your roof because you didn't put a precaution in place. Similar uh, example would be an ox. If you have an ox among your livestock that was known for attacking people, of goring people, and you didn't restrain the access of that ox to the people that would come onto your property, and that person, that ox gored somebody again and caused injury, then you, and killed somebody, you would be actually guilty of that level of murder, negligent homicide, we would call it. So all that to say, these are things that the Old Testament law lay out as unlawful taking of the life of another human being. Unlawful. There are some examples where the taking of life of a human being is allowed, very few and narrow boundaries for that, but an unlawful taking of human life is the killing that is in view here in the Sixth Commandment. Don't kill. You shall not murder. The taking of a human life unlawfully by plan or passion or carelessness. Well then, just to stay at the theoretical level, let me ask what sounds like a really silly and stupid question, but why is murder wrong? Why is it wrong? What's interesting is you'll get almost universal agreement on this one. I mean, I challenge you to find a society where murder isn't outlawed, at least at some level. Amazing that this would make the top ten in any culture, not just Jewish culture. Sounds like a silly question, but I think it's really actually a very important question to ask. Because what you'll find, if people are really honest, and societies are really honest, that murder is outlawed not based on anything about God as creator, but it's based upon the common good of society. It's just good for society that we make murder illegal. And that's why we've seen such drift in the last few generations in our own society. Because the good of society is a very subjective thing. The good of society is often determined by the majority or the powerful elite. And it can shift, and it has shifted. And that's why in this culture we've shifted what murder is defined as and what murder is criminal, what murder should be punished, to the point now where we allow for abortion. We allow for some forms of euthanasia. We allow for some forms of assisted suicide. Because the underlying issue is the good of society. And you can make an argument based on many philosophies for many types of things that used to be outlawed now being allowed for the good of society. Well, that's not where the scriptures go for the basis of the commandment against murder. It goes all the way back to the beginning in scripture. Murder is such a high offense because Human life is so valuable. That's the bottom line. Why is human life so valuable? 
Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's why we speak of the sanctity of human life. That's why we are different than all the other forms of life in the universe. Because God has created man in his own image. To harm another person made in the image of God, to murder another person is to desecrate the image of God. Sometimes in some of the environmentalist or animal rights debates, we who are Christians will be accused of being guilty of the sin of speciesism. We have talked for a long time about racism, and we agree as Christians it is wrong, it is a sin to view one race of human beings as superior or better than another race of human beings. But those with an unbiblical worldview will accuse us of speciesism because we view the human race as being of higher value than the other forms of life in the universe. And I would agree. We do believe that human life is of far more value. And it's that distinction that is at the root of the disagreement. It's interesting to me that some, not all, but some animal activists who uh, have this very high view of animal life, they would say, and that we have such a low view of animal life, it's actually many of them that would also be advocating for abortion and assisted suicide and euthanasia. You see, the problem isn't that they have such a high view of animal life, it's that they have such a low view of human life. And let me go back to the whole issue of capital punishment. Understand that when God is, we wrestle with, and I understand why we wrestle with the idea of the state having the power and authority to put to death murderers. We wrestle with that. But understand that when it was instituted in Genesis chapter 9 in the days of Noah, listen closely to the reason it was put in place. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed For God made man in his own image. It's because of the incredible, precious, high value of human life being made in the image of God. That's why murder must be treated as the unique high crime that it is. And so it is consistent, even though many say otherwise, to be pro-life in regard to life in the womb and also pro-life in regard to capital punishment being the appropriate punishment for the high crime of murdering a human being. So let me then go from there. I've given you all the philosophy, biblical philosophy and and background thinking historically of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Let's talk about how we break it. Probably most of you didn't walk in here this morning with murderer as part of your self-image. Probably not something that you thought to confess during your time of confession earlier in the worship service. But I think if we take God's word seriously, we are all murderers, and that's where we need to begin. The Bible includes not just the actual taking of human life, but many, many layers of lesser but yet very important and serious violations of this commandment. For instance, treating this precious, highly valuable gift of human life 
made in the image of God, treating it carelessly, is considered a sin consistently through Scripture. Often when I'm preparing these messages on the Ten Commandments, I'll do my language work and and contextual work and everything in the scriptures before I go to look at commentaries and get some scholars and pastors' views on on the different commandments. I will go to the Westminster Larger Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, the doctrinal standards of our church that go back many, many centuries. And what's interesting is in talking about this commandment, the sixth commandment, question number 136, after listing a lot of obvious breakings of this commandment, Listen to what it also includes. Also, excessive passions and distracting cares. Immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations. And what those descriptions are getting at is that when we treat this precious, valuable gift of life in the image of God carelessly or lightly or recklessly, we are actually breaking the sixth commandment. Think about one of the controversial issues in the sporting world. In the NFL, the National Football League, big controversy these days, is the league and our teams doing enough to protect the players from long-lasting injury, concussions particularly. And we've seen the effect that multiple concussions have had on players that many of us looked up to and admired and and, uh, loved when they're playing days, and they're left as a shell of themselves as a result of the physical damage to them during their playing days. It's a very legitimate question. I want you to understand it's a question about the Sixth Commandment. Is the league doing what it should do to preserve life, to honor the gift of human life? I had an example come home to me in a much more real, much more tangible way this past week. I was driving to work, driving to the office. My intent was to get to the office so I could sit down and dig into my commentaries and dig into my studies and and understand the Sixth Commandment. And I was kind of caught up in that and mindlessly driving down my street. And I live in Park Forest. If you've ever been in Park Forest, you know that it's a mess of a maze of streets uh, that are intentionally designed to get you lost. And uh, sometimes as you drive in and out of those neighbor, that neighborhood every day, it's often, you know, you really have to concentrate to get yourself out of there. But also you get wanting to cut corners because you're tired of all the stop signs and all the extra turns you have to make. And I was in that mindset that day. And I was driving a little too fast, and I came to the stop sign at the end of my street, and I didn't quite stop. I kind of coasted through the stoplight onto the next street, looked up, and lo and behold, there's one of our noble Ferguson Township police officers driving the other way on Devonshire. And he flashed his lights at me, and I panicked and stopped the car in the middle of the street, and he was coming my, towards me, and I'm going the other way, stopped right beside me with his lights flashing, rolled down his window. And so I rolled down my window, and I thought, well, he's going to tell me to pull over so he can write me up and give me a big fine. And I was lamenting all that in my mind as I'm rolling my window down. Well, he didn't do that. What he actually did was far more effective than writing me up. He yelled at me. <laughs> right there in the middle of the street with two cars waiting behind me, he yelled at me appropriately. And he said, slow down. Who do you think you are? And then he pointed to the house, which was right beside me, and I know the family that lives there. And he said, don't you know that there are children in that household? 
totally blew me away. I'm on my way to prepare a sermon on the Sixth Commandment. And I'm risking the lives of these children in my neighborhood. We're all murderers. We're all murderers. Jesus took it another level deeper, though, didn't he? Not just our actions. Jesus took it to another level in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. In that passage we read, you notice, he said that unjust anger and insults and calling someone a fool is in the same category as murder. It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment, he said. Theologians call that hidden murder or murder of the heart. It's what the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You've all hated your brother or your sister. A verse that I'm going to teach myself, I'm going to memorize to help me, is Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. Never really noticed this before, but let me just give you one phrase from that verse for a moment. Proverbs 12, 18 says, Rash words are like sword thrusts. Rash words are like sword thrusts. In other words, they're a violation of the Sixth Commandment. I mean, how many times have you heard in your family, in your workplace, or in your dorm, or wherever, have you heard the words, I'm going to kill you? It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Whether you ever follow through or even intend to follow through, saying the words is a violation of the Sixth Commandment. We are appalled when we hear stories of road rage where people chase other people down on the roads and pull them over and pull out a gun and shoot them. But Jesus says, anytime a guy cuts you off in traffic and you yell, whether he can hear you or not, you idiot, you are breaking the Sixth Commandment because you're desecrating the image of God in another precious human life. Other sword thrusts of the tongue are slander, gossip, mocking, ridicule. When you think about it, isn't murder really the logical, inevitable extension of our sin nature? Because our sin nature is to glorify self, to get what we want in life, no matter what it may cost those around us, And isn't the ultimate act that would flow out of that to actually take the life of another person if and when they ever get in your way? And we commit the root of that sin every day. G.K. Chesterton wrote a series of short stories, detective stories, called the Father Brown Mysteries. Father Brown was a priest who was also a detective on the side, and In one of the stories, he has someone ask Father Brown, what's your secret to figuring out these murders, you know, being able to crack these cases? What's your secret? He says, simple. He says, I just look within myself to figure out what the motivation and the desire was that led to the murder. He had a biblical view of human nature. How do we keep the law then? If we are all breakers of this law, if we are all murderers at one level or another, often over and over and over, how do we keep the law? What's the opposite of murder? What does it mean to really be consistently pro-life? Well, obviously it means not taking or denigrating or harming 
human life, but it also means promoting and preserving human life. You all know the story of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man going down the road. He's attacked by thieves, robbers. He's beat up to within an inch of his life, and he's left on the side of the road to die. And then a Jewish priest walks by and goes to the other side of the road because he's got religious business, probably has a sermon to write on the Sixth Commandment. But he goes to the other side of the road (laughs) and heads down on his way. And then a Levite comes along, and he also goes the other side of the road and goes on his way. And then a Samaritan, who was an enemy of the Jewish people, he comes down the road, and he gets off his horse, and he binds up his wounds and cares for him and gently carries him to an inn and pays for all his needs to be met so that he can be nursed back to life and healed. You realize in that story, there are three murderers, attempted murderers, the thief, the thief or thieves who beat the man, but also the Levite and the priest. According to the Sixth Commandment, they're all guilty of attempting to murder this man. And what that implies is that keeping the Sixth Commandment means loving your neighbor like Jesus said. And your neighbor is anybody that the Lord puts in your path that's in need. A life that you can bring healing and restoration to. Our lives are to have a healing effect in this broken and violent and murderous world. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4 say, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is the positive side of the Sixth Commandment. What we call mercy ministry. To care for those in great need around us. Whoever the Lord brings across our path. That's what it means to promote life. That's what it means to be pro-life. So being pro-life certainly is speaking out against and working against the sin of abortion, but it's also speaking out against and working against euthanasia and poverty and sex trafficking and abuse of drugs and alcohol and anything that desecrates the high and precious gift of human life. And notice that Jesus in Matthew 5, after talking about the murder of the heart, he goes on to talk about what it means to positively keep the commandment. And you notice what he went to? He went to peacemaking. He said, if you're in conflict with a brother, go and be reconciled. Forgive your brother. Be a peacemaker. That's how you keep the sixth commandment. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation. And of course, if we can break the sixth commandment with our words, that means we can keep the sixth commandment with our words. So we are to speak healing words. I brought up Proverbs 12, 18 a little while ago, and I read just part of that verse, the part that says rash words are like sword thrusts. But you know what the rest of that verse says? Rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. That's what it means to keep the sixth commandment. Not just to keep from thrusting with the sword of your tongue, but to use your tongue to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation. That's how you keep the sixth commandment. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up that may give grace to those who hear. Using your words to build others up and to give them grace, that's what it means to keep the sixth commandment. Now do you understand what I mean when I say you're all murderers? We're all murderers. I'm a murderer. You're a murderer. We have not valued the precious highly valued gift of human life in ourselves or others as we should. Michael Horton talks about having a conversation with a Jewish rabbi. 
And Michael Orton records the, the rabbi's words in this way. He said, the main di- this is what the rabbi said, the main difference between our religions, Christianity and Judaism, the main difference between our religions is this idea that you Christians have that you've committed a sin just by desiring it. We believe that you actually have to commit the physical act before it's really sin. Otherwise, he said with a laugh, we'd be sinning all the time. And Michael Horton said, exactly. Because you have to confess your sin before you can find forgiveness for sin from God. The only way to keep the law, this law, the sixth commandment in particular, is to go to Christ and let him give you the gift of a record of keeping the law perfectly, first of all, because he's the only one who's ever done it. Talk about somebody who not only did not take life or desecrate life or speak down against life. Here is one who lived among us, who healed the sick, caused the lame to walk, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead to life again. And yet... It says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, wounded and crushed, oppressed and afflicted, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The only one who kept the commandment perfectly died the most horrific death and bore the wrath of God, and he did it for murderers like you and me. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Where do you get life? Real life. Where do you get abundant life? You get it at the cross. Because that's where the good shepherd, the perfect sixth commandment keeper, laid down his life for murderers like you and me. Think about what he said as he hung on the cross. He looked at those who had nailed him to that cross and he said, he prayed, Father, forgive them. Murderers, his murderers. He offered forgiveness. And then when Peter, after his resurrection from the dead, which proved that God the Father had accepted his perfect life in your place, that he had borne the penalty for your murder in his own life, God raised him from the dead, and then Jesus sent his apostles into the world, and this is what it says in Acts 2, that Peter preached to the Jews, the ones who only very, just a few weeks earlier, had cried out for Christ to be nailed to the cross. This is what Peter preached to them on that day, on the day of Pentecost. He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified, whom you murdered. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Grace is available for every murder murderer at the cross, and only at the cross. Having received forgiveness and life, not just life, not just physical life, not just life here in this life, but abundant eternal life as a gift from Christ at the cross, we are then set out, like Peter was, to offer eternal and abundant physical and spiritual life to everyone through Jesus Christ. That's our calling as forgiven murderers.
As Acts chapter 5, the angel told the disciples and sent them out into Jerusalem and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all these words of this life. Life eternally in the presence of God under his blessing through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the sin of murder. Forgive us for our hypocrisy. Forgive us for not valuing the preciousness of the life that you have given, the life that reflects your image. Forgive us for taking our life for granted. And Lord, use us as your witnesses that we might lead others to know the life that we have found in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.